listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello, I'm Robin Whittaker. And I'm Sean Winter. And this is Pentecost 6, and Sean and I will be discussing three of the readings, Genesis chapter 24, verses 34 to 38, 42 to 49, and 58 to 67. Romans chapter 7, 15 to 25, and the Gospel reading from Matthew chapter 11, 16 to 19, and 25 to 30. So, Sean, let's start with Genesis. We've jumped ahead. What's going on here in chapter 24 to lead us into this passage today? Well, we've got Abraham coming towards uh, the end of his life and aware that now that he has uh, sons and there's a, um, a line of ancestry that has been established, he has a descendant, um, that uh, in order for that line to be perpetuated longer term, um, his son Isaac also needs a son. And to have a son, Isaac needs a wife. So uh, the story of Genesis chapter 24, which is a long um, story with lots of kind of repetition, and the lectionary um, selectors here have actually been quite clever because what they've done is they've gone to the end of the story, really, and they've picked up the way in which the servant, who's a central character, retells the story, (laughs) Mm. even though the story has just been told in the narrative for the first 35 or so verses. So so Genesis 24 tells the story, then tells the servant summary of the story, and we come in at that point. And basically the servant is the person who is dispatched um, uh, back to Abraham's home country um, and dispatched there to find uh, a wife that comes from Abraham's own clan, tribe, um, people group. Yep. And we're going to see here um, some some themes, some motifs that appear all over Genesis and the later um, Hebrew Bible tradition. Uh, I mean, ultimately, in a nutshell, this is a story of, of the covenant, the promises of God now being passed on to the next generation. So the continuation of God's faithfulness to God's people. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, it just picks up really the theme that was already there in the Abraham narrative. Abraham's old age, Sarah's old age and barrenness are overcome by divine promise and the gift of a child. This is uh, a reiteration of that kind of challenge to and threat to the viability of the covenant promises um, that ultimately are overcome by the faithfulness of God and God's, um, I think in verse 12 of 24 it uses the word hesed, God's loving kindness shown towards um, Abraham and his descendants. Exactly. Well, let's unpack perhaps a few things in the story. Um, the servant goes off and, and we've got, um, as you said, Sean, this this insistence of Abraham, if you were to read the surrounding neighbor, um, narrative, uh, Abraham has insisted to his servant two things. One is Isaac cannot go himself. Isaac has to stay in the land to inherit the land God's promised. That's right. And But that the servant has to go back to the family yep. of origin land. So this is about... Um, Intermarriage, staying within the family group. Absolutely. Um, so you can't you can't be marrying a Canaanite uh, no. woman. So this is, and I mean, it's important to say this is operating at the ideology of the narrative, at the ideological level. Yep. Um, we have no idea what what did or didn't happen in this kind <laughs> of primeval history, or certainly the, yeah. in the Abrahamic era. Era. What we do know, though, is that there was a particular focus on the risks 
of intermarriage and <clears throat> what it said about the kind of vulnerability and fragility of the covenant people and the people of Israel, there was a strong emphasis on this in the post-exilic period. Yes. So when Israel came back from Babylon, where we assume the possibility of intermarriage yeah, would have happened. Definitely. <clears throat> we have Ezra and Nehemiah both dealing with this problem of intermarriage. Um, <clears throat> and so it's highly likely that this story takes on this very strong emphasis on keeping the, the purity of the line of descendants. Yep. Um, uh, perhaps got, that got shaped in that kind of post-exilic period in particular. And we see that in the way Rebecca is introduced um, by the well and, of course, Yay, that, by yeah, the by the well. Yay. <laughs> but of course, this is a biblical motif. Other people, Jacob and Rachel, meet at a well. Moses will meet um, Zipporah, yep. however, Zipporah, however people pronounce her name, by a well. So th- th- these meet meet cute kind of things. Betro- betrothal scenes, betrothal. I think, is the technical <laughs> is the technical thing. I just gave um, it a movie a movie title <laughs> with uh, with some servants thrown in to kind of do the dirty work of yes. doing the, the the relevant negotiations. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, you know, just for. Uh, those listeners who understand that the title for the podcast comes from the John chapter 4 by the well scene, Jesus yeah. and the Samaritan woman, that scene itself is informed by these earlier stories. Yes. Um, so, uh, yes, well, a well is, on a, is a, a, a symbolic location for that process of encounter um, and for... Um, what we would call it's not it's not falling in love it's betrothal yes, it's a, it's it's a form of arranged marriage yes. yeah that's right and we need to be clear the cultural traditions here you can see it i mean this story irked me at many levels rereading <laughs> re- um it's so male centered it's all about you know isaac loves her it's all about isaac's feelings rebecca's feelings although there is a few surprising elements including that rebecca is consulted at some point about whether she will go mm. The question is not ultimately whether she will go, but whether she's willing to go immediately. And Laban, her father, actually does consult her, which is kind of shocking. And the love itself is kind of shocking at the end where Isaac loves her because love is not a requirement in an ancient marriage. Um, But it is the we see male transactions happening here. Um, so, but but he loves her after. Uh, I think those are sequential. Those verbs yes, in verse yes. sixty-seven. He brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebecca. She became his wife, and he loved her. Yes. Um, so Isaac was was comforted after his mother's death. There's yeah, no, it's all no, about no Isaac. psychological or um, weird Freudian <laughs> no. stuff happening there. Anyway, no, no. Um, yeah. So we we um, and the, going back to the purity bloodline stuff. I mean, Rebecca's purity. It's mentioned she's never been with a man, so that the purity is off. Uh, operating at a number of levels, yep. but again, to ensure that this is within the family, yep. uh, no intermarriage or other children kind of possibility. Look, I think it's a great story. I, I think I think the focus on the the, the servant is quite an interesting mm. narrative feature of it, and I think the idea that. Um, the servant plays this kind of critical role in the negotiations is something that at least brings the text to life in a certain kind of a way. Yeah. Um, and uh, But it is undoubtedly all told from a pretty male perspective with male men making decisions about um, Rebecca's future. She's not invisible in the narrative, but she no. only has minimal levels of uh, agency. So um, as is true of pretty much um, all of uh, the Pentateuch, 
Um, these covenant promises we've been talking about, God's promise to Israel, is largely worked out through the male line, through the male characters, um, even though the women, of course, are absolutely integral, integral to the perpetuation um, of uh, yeah. the line of descendants. And in fact, that scene at the end that we mentioned, despite all its weird Freudian stuff going on with into the tent of his mother, I mean, that symbolically is functioning. This is the tent of the matriarch. That's right. So Rebecca now becomes the new matriarch. Sarah has died. Yep. Previous scene, Sarah's dead and buried. Abraham will die soon, but not before he has some more children. Um, but yeah... It's doing that. I mean, the servant, your idea of focusing on the servant is interesting potentially for preachers because there's something here about um, uh, calling it a model for ministry is too strong. That is not what the original writers are obviously intending. But there's a way we can play with this story as a way of, you know, what it means to be sent out. And we see at many points the servant prays. He kind of makes a deal with God, like send me a sign if this happens. So there's praying, there's watching for God's sign, there's waiting, there's relationships that have to develop and trust um, as part of the action. Um, So as is always the way with these Hebrew Bible texts, I think characterization is always a kind of way in for the preacher. How is this figure characterized? Mm. And how how can you as a preacher kind of bring that characterization to to life, connect it to people's contemporary experience and their own Mm. kind of understanding of what it means to be a Christian disciple? Um, We don't do that by saying this is what the text is about, but the fact that it is a narrative, that these are sagas in some way yeah. or another um, with, with ancient versions of what we would call kind of romantic encounters. Yes. Yeah. Bringing all that to life is a really important point. So the cultural background and the characterizations of the stories um, are really helpful for the preacher, I think. In But what the preacher needs to direct all of that towards is what the text directs it towards, which is the idea that God is faithful to God's covenant promises and despite adversity, despite complexity, um, despite the uh, potential conflicts between these different people groups in the ancient world, um, God ultimately will be faithful to the promise to Abraham. Yeah, and one last thing I'd add to, to layer onto that just because I've been in church conversations recently about this. You know, for many of us who are in churches who are struggling and, and wondering about our future as mainstream churches do decline, um, that focus on God's promises and God's faithfulness and even when it looks like the bloodline might end, mm. there there is through this combination of action and prayer. That's right. Con- and God's faithfulness. A future. A future. So, Sean, I'm going to ask you to kick us off with Romans 7 as well, given that you are the Romans scholar in the room. Um Chapters 7 and 8, which we're going to get this week and next week, are pretty dense. Pretty dense. <laughs> so how, yeah. how do if, we if you, deal? If you, if you don't like Paul already, you're not <laughs> going to like him anymore, having uh, worked through some of Romans 7, perhaps. No. Um, look, I think it's really important. We've actually got a bit of a run of, of um, second readings from Romans in this season of the lectionary. And I think it's pretty important to uh, say two things. That The first is that the kind of density of Paul's argument here is not density for its own sake. And it's not, this isn't theology or theological ideas or argumentation that are abstract. Mm-hmm. Um, what's happening in this section of Romans is that Paul is trying to tease out some fundamental questions that arise out of the particular contextual circumstances that he's writing to in Rome, which is to do with this question of how it is 
um, that um, Jewish Christ believers and non-Jewish, Gentile or pagan Christ believers, how they can coexist in, under some kind of shared identity. Mm. And uh, one of the things that happens is the more that Paul kind of argues and, and fi- reaches for arguments to help him to answer that very specific question about ethnicity and identity and ethics, um, the more he reaches for arguments, the more we tend to interpret the arguments as abstract and universal, and we disconnect them from the very real social location in which they were first articulated and embedded. Yeah. So it's really important that when you get to these sections, and <clears throat> there's language about law, which we're going to have extensively in Romans 7, and particularly the first half of Romans 8, or when we think about the language of spirit in Romans 8, mm. we don't run all the way over to our kind of universal categories of Christian theology, which of course aren't universal at all. Um, we actually need to reach for what do these terms mean in Paul's social location? Yeah, what um, is he doing? That, what is he doing? And so even when it looks theoretical or philosophical or abstract, <laughs> Paul is actually having a conversation about these social realities in, in highly distinctive and, I think, formative ways for the development of Christian theology, of course. Yeah, yeah. You've almost convinced me. No, <laughs> no you have. Um, so, I mean, our lectionary kicks in with verse 15. I feel like we need verse 14. You absolutely do, um, <laughs> because verse 14 uh, really summarises the first part of chapter 7. and mm. um, Paul is talking about the law, and effectively what he's saying is... Um, we live in the reign. We we live under the power, um, and as those who are enslaved to this regime, power structure, domain of what Paul calls the reign of sin and death. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we could talk a lot more about the language of sin. We could talk a lot more about the language of death and where all these ideas come from for Paul and how they relate to Genesis and other texts. But the crucial thing is Paul is basically diagnosing not the human condition but the human location. It's okay. not what's wrong with humanity. It's that humanity is located in a in a relationship to these powers these, that are yeah, at work in yeah. the world that are hostile to God that render them imprisoned, oppressed, enslaved, captured. Yes. Which, which goes to his larger <clears throat> theology, right? This is something that God has addressed for us That's right. because we – because of our location, absolutely, we are we, we, we are, inca- we are yeah. incapable of of escaping ourselves out of this particular yeah. location under the power of capital S sin. sin. Yeah, yeah. So that previous verse, I mean, that frames that, doesn't it? We're, we're, we're you know, because we are of the flesh, we are. I mean, this language of slavery right. into <clears> sin, <throat> yeah. and I mean, it's worth hammering home. Sin here is not some individual naughty act. That's right. Sin is. I find it helpful maybe in my brain to insert the word sort of powers of evil or something. It is it is this much larger force. Yeah. Um, I don't know how you would... Uh, um. All sorts of language. Sin with a capital S is the most effective way of doing yeah. it probably. Um, the main point is that it's not what we do. It is what is done to us. Yep. So um, sin in these contexts is not human culpability or human moral failure. It is... And the power that generates human moral culpability and moral failure um, to which we are enslaved and that acts upon humanity um, and that uh, is conceived by Paul as a power fundamentally opposed to the, the purposes of the creative purposes of God. Yep. So when Paul says 
we know that the law is spiritual. The question he's just been asking is, okay, well, if we're under this power, then does the law help us? Mm. And by and, law here, you mean the Torah, the Jewish, the law. Jewish law. It's a yes. Jewish question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Surely if we're Jews and we keep the law, surely that's a way of kind of resisting or working our way out of yeah. or finding some kind of response. And Paul says no, because the law itself is also under the same power. Mm. And this is to do with Paul's kind of eschatological worldview that he believes that pretty much everything before Christ, however good it might be, and the yep. law is good and holy yep, yep. and spiritual. Has a place. but it has So it has a place, but it is still captive to the power uh, of sin. So it is spiritual um, and it can't deliver you. Yep. Um, and uh, your flesh is also captive, by the way. So um, your own kind of bodily, human yep. bodily identity is also the, the, the site and the location of this conflict um, between the power of God and the power of sin. Yeah, so we get we get that in that famous verse 15 about, you know, that I do, I do what I... I don't do what I want, and like, but this is more than just some sort of battle of willpower about whether I will eat that next slice of chocolate cake or not. Yeah, it's, we've so, got to see this in cos- <clears throat> cosmic kind of terms, right? So one of the ways that we do this kind of abstraction thing I was talking about earlier, one of the ways that we do it is we uh, we kind of universalize it. We make it about you know the human condition in some kind of generic <laughs> sense. The fact that we all kind of have you know a little devil on one shoulder and a little angel on the other shoulder, and we're a bit torn between them. Um, or we moralise it, yep, and we turn it into this question of yeah whether whether or not we should eat another slice of chocolate cake or whether we've gone to the gym that morning or those kind. And it's about willpower. It, it's about none of those things. Yeah. It's about the location in which human beings exist. Um, but of course, the reason that we've personalised all this to questions of individual decision is because Paul speaks in the first person singular. Yeah, so is the I here Paul? That was one of my next questions for you. Well, there's a question, Robin. Um, <laughs> I realise you could write a whole book answering uh, that. Several people already have. have yes. the, um, there are three basic options here. The first is that Paul is speaking about himself in this section. Mm. Um, and the great debate in Christian history has been whether Paul is describing himself as a pre-Christian, so in his before his encounter with Christ dilemma, Mm. or whether he's describing Mm. his dilemma as a Christian, now caught between what he knows to be right in the light of the gospel and and, uh, what he uh, continues to do. Um, The second option is that this is just a generic I, so it kind of means no one in particular, which means that it does mean everyone in some sense, and that's to turn this discourse particularly into philosophical language, um, and really to read it as a debate about the uh, the quest to conquer the human passions. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the war between reason and rationality and the passions. And desires, Cla- yeah. Classic debate in the ancient world. Yep. The third way of reading it is to uh, say that, well, it is about all of us, but it's about one of us in particular, and the one of us is Adam. Mm. So that Paul is describing not just the human condition in a philosophical sense, but the Adamic condition in a very Jewish sense. And the reason we think that may well be the case is that when Paul talks about sin earlier on, um, he talks about sin in a way that really does evoke the Genesis story. Um, Sin seizing an opportunity in the commandment. Um, it's really only Adam who could fulfill the condition of mm. seven nine. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. 
So many people read this passage through the lens of Genesis 2 and 3, and um, I think that's probably the most plausible explanation of what's going on here. And, of course, in other parts of Romans, uh, Paul explicitly evokes the yep. Adam Adam tradition. Romans 5, uh, yep. it's there, front yep. and centre. Exactly. So if we've named the problem is our human condition and location um, without universalising it, but as a, as a mm. Jewish Christ believer in this time and place, um, there's this force that acts on us. What is Paul's solution and do we find it in this passage? We do, right <laughs> at the end. Um, and it leads into the text that we'll look at next yeah. week, which is Romans 8. So um, Paul ends up, as he reflects upon this with a rhetorical question, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ um, our Lord. Now, Paul doesn't say how God does that. He just says that it has happened. God has. Yeah. God has done it. And of course, Romans 5 and 6, parts of Romans 3, talk about this. Christ's death and yeah. resurrection um, are the liberation of Christ from the power of sin and death. And insofar as we die <laughs> and are raised with Christ, we also die to sin, we die to death. to death, we die to the law, and we are raised into this new life that Christ makes available to us. So we need to move on to the gospel in a sec, but before we do, um, to avoid being too abstract, I can imagine people listening and going, there's no way I could preach on this, right? Like it yep. still sounds pretty, yep. um, although I do think that those last couple of verses, who will rescue me, um, is, is a poignant kind of way into that question. Absolutely. Um, but how how can we imagine preaching into this about, you know, in a way that gets us well, I mean, it, it is an opportunity perhaps to help congregations reflect about that that sin is less that, that, that this is something God has done. Yeah, so I, th- I think maybe the, the, the simple way failing. is to is to f- frame the question as okay, where in our world and in our experience and in our particular context, where do we see the conflict between? all of those structures and powers and systems that are hostile to God and to God's purposes Mm. and God's love as revealed in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where do we see that conflict being played out? And yes, of course, we all experience a personal version of it, but it's there in all sorts of aspects of our economic, our uh, environmental, our political, our social um, uh, lives and uh, exploring the way in which that conflict continues to be something that affects us deeply mm. <laughs> um, is something that I think we can then offer hope into through the proclamation of the possibility of new life. Did you know you could join our Facebook group by the well for extra content and discussion? So Matthew 11 and the lectionary has given us a couple of bits, 16 to 19 and 25 to 30. Um, at the beginning of chapter 11, we have um, a report come in that John the baptizer is in prison yep. um, and and we get some back and forth um, about he sends his disciples to ask Jesus and his disciples, are you the one to come? So we have we have some a lot of John the Baptist stuff going on before our scene um, in verse 16. And I think that's important because John is named midway through that, but what Jesus really starts with in these first few verses is a comparison between two models or two ways of ministering, I guess, that John and Jesus came with the same mission, 
Um, we've got that early in Matthew's Gospel. Yep. They're both they're both there to serve God. Um, but one came in the case of John the Baptist, being this austere, um, you know, fasting, mourning, lamenting, you know, kind of image. And then Jesus came, being accused of being a glutton because he drank and and danced. So we've got images of the dancing and the eating and the fasting and the lamenting. And Jesus basically says, "Well, we can't win." You're either too pious or not pious enough, um, and neither of us did what you expected. That's pretty much um, how the, the the passage unfolds. I mean, it, it comes Matthew 11. I think pulls in all sorts of different traditions, <laughs> um, and there are a few things probably really important to say. It's one of the passages that makes it very, very clear that the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus were very strongly aligned and had significant continuities with each other. Yep. So, you know, to the extent that people wish that Jesus wasn't a kind of preacher of eschatological judgment, actually, the relationship with John the Baptist suggests that he always was, even if there were other things to be said right yeah so um so uh we have a we have a comparison and a contrast but there's significant continuity um between them and verse 16 really says you're right okay we've proclaimed this message it's a message about um about god calling people to some kind of renewal and Mm. repentance john's done that I've done that. Yeah. How has this generation responded <laughs> to those yeah. two invitations and those two overtures? And I mean, it, it, whether or not the person who plays the flute and dances is Jesus, and the person who wails yeah, and true. invites mourning is John the Baptist, is more difficult to establish. I yeah. think. Yeah, it's not it's to be not, straightforward allegorical yeah, that, kind of no, yeah, exactly. literalism. But, but effectively, that that parable of yes. children playing and and you know one group trying to get the other group to participate in what's going on positive or negative um that image says it doesn't matter what you're being invited to you're not coming yeah right so um so john came eating and drinking and they say he has a demon the son of man um comes uh, and they say look you know he's a glutton yep uh, and a friend of uh, tax collectors so the important thing at that stage is then the final phrase in verse 19 yeah the idea that wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And there are two things there. Um, The first is that this phrase, by deeds, by her deeds, picks up, I think, the language of uh, verse 2 of chapter 11. Because when the people go to John and tell him, what they tell him is about the deeds, it's the same word in Greek, erga, the, the deeds of the Messiah. Yes. So the deeds of the Jesus as the Messiah are the deeds of wisdom. And that notion of wisdom evokes all sorts of traditions of divine wisdom um, that this passage uh, is very, very clearly, I think, playing with and alluding to. Yes, and which get picked up perhaps even more in in the bit that follows. That's right. Um, But we should mention if our colleague Sally Douglas was here, (laughs) she would have a lot more to say about this Sophia wisdom tradition in terms of Jesus and expectations around Jesus and his ministry. Um, but you can read her book, Jesus, Sophia. Absolutely, which, has just, um, come which out. has just come out. Um, But let's talk about how that gets picked up then perhaps in, in what follows. Yep. Um, again, we get some playing on opposites, mm. right? Dualisms, the wise and the intelligent have had things hidden. The foolish or the weak have had, um, have, you know, this is to whom God has revealed the, these things. Yeah. Um, yeah, what do, what do we do with 
one of the things that strikes me here is that this language about revealing what is hidden mm. um, is is re- a really strong apocalyptic idea. So it connects with all of these kind of eschatological ideas elsewhere, but it's focused less on kind of telling the future mm. um, and what's going to happen in the future when God's reign comes in its fullness. And it's more about how people are responding to the revelation of God's purposes that is there present in the ministry of Jesus and in the yeah. deeds of the Messiah, which are these deeds of healing um, and uh, preaching to the poor and all of those kinds of things that Jesus has been involved in through the gospel. So um, in the middle of it, we have uh, verse 27, um, what's famously called the Johannine thunderbolt. Um, <laughs> yes. So this is a bolt, a, 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 <laughs> a bolt that comes from John's gospel, yeah. son and father knowing each other and what, they, mm. what they're both doing kind of in the middle of the gospel of Matthew. Um, and then we have invitation. So, so we have this idea that um, even though this is wisdom tradition, it's also apocalyptic tradition. Yeah, yeah, it's both. Um, and in both cases, what happens is that the revelation that God is doing something absolutely decisive in the ministry of Jesus leads to an invitation. Yep. So you've rejected John the Baptist and Jesus. Well, I'm going to tell you again, and then I'm going to say, come, come to me, come. all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Yes, and I think that context, even if preachers might be tempted to focus just on these last couple of verses, which are very beautiful and, yep. and well-known, um, that context of both wisdom and apocalypticism makes sense here because the, the invitation, I mean, in, in its context, the weary and the heavily burdened, we shouldn't read this too narrowly as just pointing to the burden of the Jewish law, but in fact a much wider context of the burden of a harsh political, a harsh economic system, um, in addition to religious systems that keep people oppressed and keep people in poverty and and all of that kind of stuff. Um, But the promise of rest there in verse 28 is is this kind of Sabbath but also eschatological thing, right? Future rest with God. We've got... um, so um, in, in significant Jewish traditions, the notion of God resting on the Sabbath becomes a kind of eschatological promise that ultimately creation is headed towards that rest um, as its destiny. Uh, it's a major theme in the book of Hebrews. Um, it becomes a major theme in some early Christian texts, although quite problematically in Gnostic texts. Yep. Um, the, uh, but that's exactly right. In fact, it, and it can't be the Jewish law that's the burden, although, Matthew, because the, the image of the yoke is actually a Torah image. Yes. So so take my yoke upon you is not about, you know, you can Rejecting throw away the burden yeah. of the law. It's about take upon you, you know, my teaching. And, of course, we know in Matthew 5 that Jesus doesn't reject the Jewish law. What he does mm-hmm. is he intensifies and radicalizes it at certain points but regards himself as fulfilling the law and the prophets. Exactly. And the language there, my yoke is easy. It's this Christos language. Um, it can mean good. Yep. It can mean beneficial. Yep. Um, it can mean benevolent, um, useful. So there's a sense that... that you. You take this on that this this um, wisdom tradition and the, and the and the law that comes with it is is not rejected here, but taken on, but in a way that is life giving, right? Uh, life giving and joyful. I think. I think yeah. the the idea that um, your commitment to the way of Jesus and to the teaching of Jesus um, is is not received as demand. It's received precisely as invitation from one who, um, like divine wisdom, offers gentleness and care and welcome um and responding to that invitation therefore is an invitation into a way of uh, of a significant joy by the well is brought to you by pilgrim theological college and the uniting church in australia it's produced by adrian jackson 
Thanks for listening.